Welcome to MMO, the Mike Mike and Oscar show. They cover films then, win the gold, but now we're talking Pixar films for all of these shows. From Toy Story 1 up through Toy Story 4, this is the MMO, the Pixar Rewatch Show. Said it wouldn't be done. Well, we said it couldn't be done. We also said it shouldn't be done, but we're doing it. <laughs> and we're back. This is Mike, Mike, and Oscar. This is another entry into our Pixar Rewatch series. And believe it or not, this is the long awaited, much anticipated, sure to disappoint Cars episode. <laughs> oh, vroom, vroom. <laughs> We're covering all three Cars movies in this one episode. God help us if this thing goes over an hour. Uh, but that is the plan right now. I'm your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host also Mike. Also Mike. Going to try not to sing too much country music. <laughs> Got a lot of it's fire of for this one, biggest though. complaints about the... Well, I have a couple complaints, <laughs> but about Cars 1 anyway, yes. They, uh, they were better... Uh, overall, they were a little better than what I feared. Because I'd only seen the first one years and years ago, so I, I'm going to be... A little more upbeat than I thought. Two of these surpassed my expectations. Good. One of these may be the worst movie I've ever seen. It's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll, it's get bad. Into, we'll get into all of that and more as we talk about everything that went into both the pre-production, the behind-the-scenes process of the making of, and finally what made it to screen in all three Cars episodes. We'll break down what these types of episodes are. If you've not joined us before for a Disney Pixar episode, a part of our Pixar Rewatch series, what they are is basically two reviews for the price of one. Now, normally, we will take a movie or a franchise, and we'll divide it into non-spoiler section and a spoiler section. We're going to have the same process here, though. It's going to be a little more elongated, a little more spread out, because, again, we're covering three movies. The most we've ever done in any one Pixar episode yet has been two movies. This one, we're giving all three cars treatments. So we will have the non-spoiler section, so if you've not seen these movies yet, don't worry. The first half of this episode will be all non-spoilers about all three Cars movies. We then will have a clip from one of the movies that'll act as the spoiler warning, and the second half of all these episodes, as is the case with all our Pixar episodes, it will be spoiler-filled, but again, we'll be covering the spoilers for all three Cars movies, Cars, Cars 2, and Cars 3. So again, if you've not seen any of the movies yet, that's okay. This is where you want to be. It's non-spoiler. We're just going to talk about the behind-the-scenes stuff. What separates these non-spoiler sections from other non-spoilers, such as what we do in our Oscar Sprint profiles, what we do in our Tarantino rewatch episodes, or rewatch series episodes, we concentrate on the business of Pixar at the time of release. Now, yeah. the reason that this one is shaping up to be such a massive episode is that a lot went down in going into uh, this first Cars movie being released as far as the clash between Disney and Pixar and really what was the, the boiling point of not only their having a falling out but them coming back together and Disney eventually acquiring Pixar wholesale. All of that will be touched on in this episode. What we do to differentiate our spoiler section from other spoiler sections of other episodes is we've been concentrating on the 22 rules of screenwriting success that Pixar had put out a couple years ago that have permeated their way through screenwriting classes across this country. We have been lining up one rule with every one movie so, for example, in this case, in this episode, we're going to have three rules to go over mm -hmm. and to match them up with the movies along the way. So you have that to look forward to in the spoiler section. But again, we're going to start non-spoilers for the first half. And the way we start every non-spoiler section is Mike is going to run down the cast and crew of all of these movies. May God have mercy on our souls. Yeah, so Owen Wilson, Bonnie Hunt, Paul Newman for the first movie, Cheech Marin, Tony Shalhoub. We have George Carlin for the first movie. Michael Caine. 
Yeah. In the second movie, Emily Mortimer, Eddie Izzard, Chris Cooper, Nathan Fillion, Cristela Alonso, Army Hammer was yeah, in the third boy. movie, Kerry Washington, Margot Martindale, of course, John, the mustache from Cheers, Times Three, he That's is right. Mac, Larry the Cable Guy, of course, is Mater. Of course. And pretty much all of the NASCAR and Formula One personalities, yeah, drivers. Michael Schumacher, Daryl Waltrip makes an appearance. I'm not a big NASCAR guy. I don't know if you ever had no. one yet. But they just make left turns all day. I mean, it's, it's a fine sport. I just... Don't get it. That signal on. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so we got some specs, production profile, kind of a meld. So Mike, start us off. Right, so usually we have our own specs section, we have our own production nuggets section. Because the history of Pixar has been so crucial, there's been so much lead up to it, and it is the longest one uh, for any Pixar episode that we've had. We're kind of melding a couple usual sections together in this little bit of a a prefix to get you a more well-rounded picture of what went on. don't worry, because Mike One will explain it all in the same amount of time over would have taken to do all those segments. <laughs> so, Cars 1 debuted June of 2006. It was directed by John Lasseter. Joe Ramph gets a co-director credit. Cars 2 came out in June of 2011. Directed again by Lasseter. Bradford Lewis got the co-director credit this time. <laughs> and Cars 3 came out in September of 2017. Of course, it was June as well of 2017. And this one, Cars 3, was directed by Brian Fee, who also had something to do with the writing of the story. I got you speaking so fast there. <laughs> in terms of Oscars, Cars 1 was nominated for the best animated feature Happy Feet won uh, Monster House was the other nomination yeah only three nominees that year uh, it was also nominated for best original song by James Taylor and Randy Newman for Our Town we have had some on the nose best original songs throughout yeah. this picture is this one the most on the nose best original I song from Pixar I remember this song I really don't like uh, there are basically this town used to be lively and now everyone's gone away but we still find purpose that was basically the lyrics I thought he was living in a hallucination the whole time <laughs> I mean there's there's no people it's just cars anyway Oscars uh, for the second movie cannot be found this was the first Pixar film in 2011 yeah. it took t- until 2011 from 1995 there that didn't get nominated for an Oscar. There's a reason for that. Yeah, it'd be the same for Cars 3, (laughs) Coco 1 in 2017, Boss Baby, The Breadwinner, Ferdinand, and Loving Vincent. I would agree those are all better than Cars 3, even though Cars 3 is is not terrible, and uh, we're going to talk about it. Mike, you got some critical reception? So the Rotten Tomato scores for all these Cars movies. Cars 1 is a 75% critic score, 79% audience score. Cars 2, 38% critic score. Yeah. 49% 49% audience score. That is validating. I said one of these is my least favorite movie. <laughs> Can you guess which it is? Uh, Cars 3, bit of a rebound, 70% critic score, 69% nice audience score. So like we said, coming back there, uh, what about some box office numbers here, Mike? Yeah, the first movie made 244 domestically, 218 overseas for a $464 million cum off a $120 million budget. So definitely in the black there on the first movie, 462 off a of $120. 20. Yeah, 462. So again, the the uh, the international 2006, the international market's not booming right. yet. So, but they like their cars. Yeah, 191 domestically for the second movie, 370 
overseas for that second movie, which really saved yep. it. Two hundred million dollar budget. It made five sixty two million worldwide. Again, a big money earner for the second film. More than half a billion dollars there. The third film made one fifty two stateside and two thirty one overseas for a three eighty three million dollar total, up a one seventy five million dollar budget. Yeah, so we're talking in total about five hundred million dollars total went into the productions of these three car budget movies. Wise, yep. They ended up grossing one point four one billion or so at the box office. So it's not even a three to one dollar breakdown in terms of gross box office dollar to every dollar put in which would suggest that these films were barely profitable, if at all, for Disney Pixar. But Cars is responsible not only for very healthy home video and DVD sales, but it's also become one of the most lucrative toy lines for Disney as the first Cars movie alone, as was reported in 2011 by The Hollywood Reporter, was said to have sold 200 million individual die-cast copies of the characters in the film, and the franchise in total was responsible for making Disney more than $8 billion in global global retail sales and again that was just off the back of car one prior to car two's debut so if you have questions as to why two and three were greenlit as sequels there's your answer no wonder these cars are getting new paint jobs yeah. every every 20 minutes of these movies. And all the principal characters are doing that in the third movie, yeah. by the way. Yeah, for Even the reason. Mack truck has got, like, a disguise. Uh, I, I guess it paid off, right? I mean, yeah. you know, you, you go to any kind of toy store or anything, and your little kid sees those cars smiling back at him. How can you say no? But good God, an $8 billion Toy industry property, essentially. Incredible, incredible. Mike, you have the history of the Pixar company. This is going to be massive. I'm going to try to take inhales during this, uh, <laughs> as, as my co-host warned me to do, because I do get a little ahead of myself sometimes. <gasps> but let's talk about the history of Pixar. And like we said, we've given this one plenty of hype, and for good reason. Because to understand exactly what went down between Disney and Pixar, the two companies, how they had their falling out, is really to understand the interplay amongst three pivotal players and their individual beliefs in what Disney and Pixar each had separately and were capable of or not together. And if you've listened to our first five episodes of this series or know about the history of Disney's eventual purchase of Pixar, it will not surprise you to hear that the names of the three pivotal players are Michael Eisner, Steve Jobs, and Bob Iger. I love that you wrote alliteration in there, first of all. You're welcome. And I also love that we're going to get inside the uh, back rooms of all these power brokers. This is a lot of uh, (laughs) bold type in my document. The biggest light as to where we could pick up this story is shined in this same part of our Toy Story 2 episode. So this segment of Toy Story 2 was really one of the kicking off points, or at least the meat of the falling out and the, the problems. Setup. Yes. Uh, thank you for find, having the words that I can't find. I Sorry. am really worded out. Uh, <laughs> as a means of a one-sentence recap, we discussed in that episode how Disney and Pixar had actually begun work on what would be their second working agreement, where Pixar was contracted to make five films for Disney and the profits to be shared like a partnership, but with Disney recouping their resources for marketing expenditures and retaining story and character rights, as well as, ultimately, sequel rights should Pixar ever walk away from the arrangement or let it expire a deal which was ultimately negotiated between Pixar head Steve Jobs and then Disney CEO Michael Eisner a better deal for Pixar the second one sure than the first one which was a flat rate fee 26 million dollars for three films yeah 
Every film up through Cars 1 was negotiated for and fell under this second deal. We talked about how the contract didn't really apply to Toy Story 2 last episode, as that was settled via gentleman's agreement, but as far as Pixar's duty to Disney, they were bound by nothing once the animation company's work on Cars 1 was completed. So, both sides, thus, were interested in negotiating yet another deal, and began doing so some years prior to their current operating contract's expiration, as news articles were reporting on the negotiations between Disney and Pixar as far back as February of 2003, and some stories indicating that negotiations even began in earnest sometime in late 2002. A lot of great stuff in audiobook form, and on Netflix for that matter, yeah. about this, and uh, you, you're doing a, a bang-up job already. I'm, I'm psyched. Let's there was go. only one small, tiny, really insignificant <laughs> problem to getting a new deal done between Eisner-led Disney and Jobs Helm Pixar. That being that Eisner and Jobs had grown an intense distaste for one another. Uh, they couldn't stand each other, by all accounts. And maybe worse, in terms of the ability to do business with one another, they grew mistrustful of one another. Curiously enough, had to look up whether mistrustful was a word. It is... I'm a genius. I want Aaron Sorkin to write this story, <laughs> by the way. So everyone knows Steve Jobs, right? Uh, whether through anecdotal evidence of first and secondhand accounts, or the various portrayals of the man on the silver screen, or through his biography, Steve Jobs is maybe the most well-known billionaire in the history of the world. And with that, everyone knew how Steve Jobs felt about being told what to do, or being made to feel like he had an, to answer to someone. The man who was credited with creating basically Apple and its core products wasn't so keen on the idea of having to answer to corporate overlords in any capacity. And Michael Eisner's leadership style was that of being a corporate overlord, being such a corporate overlord. He was a man who worked at Disney for decades, clawing his way up the ranks, and was notorious for a no-nonsense business style and famed stubbornness in both negotiation and personality alike. And sometimes even the most powerful people in the world can start off like oil and water, and as we all know, the one thing that doesn't help oil and water blend together is having water give backhanded insults about oil in the press and watching as oil talks down all of water's accomplishments. Look at these metaphors. That old chestnut. <laughs> uh, there were four main incidents that stick out with regards to building the animosity that boiled over between Eisner and Jobs and would ultimately lead to the dissolution of the Disney-Pixar working relationship. First was Eisner's decision to attack Apple computers and their marketing slogan of Rip, Mix, Burn, which was an ad campaign sometime in 2001. Eisner was on the record saying that he believed that promoted piracy. Of course it does. <laughs> a quizzical move, though, from Eisner in and of itself when you consider that this hearing took place in 2001, meaning that Jobs and Eisner had been doing business together for over half a decade at this point. Yeah. So they weren't, like, you know, unfamiliar with one another. But one that only invites greater scrutiny when you consider that said attack was done during a congressional hearing, meaning Eisner ripped his partner's life work to Congress unprovoked on the record, oh, and then he lied about having done so to Steve Jobs' face, even though a transcript of the hearing exists, as all transcripts of congressional hearings do, all of this according to both Peter Cohen's article on Macworld and Brooke Barnes' 2008 article from the New York Times. Shots across the bow, you might say. Not a great yeah. start. Not a great start at all. <laughs> the second incident came a year plus after that hearing as Pixar was hard at work in production on Finding Nemo, that little film that would soon shatter all records of what an animated film was thought capable of accomplishing in mm -hmm. box office form. Eisner, after having seen some early reels of Nemo, reportedly suggested that Pixar was due for a, quote, reality check. 
Again, an Eisner act which, when taken at face value, may be questionable but ultimately harmless. But Eisner again took the further step of putting in a confidential memo which somehow leaked to the press of how Nemo was, quote, nowhere near as good as Pixar's previous films, but that, quote, of course they, those working on Nemo, think it's great. These quotes all according to multiple sources, including Jobs' own biography. That is strange. I mean, he's poo-pooing his own product. It's still connected. You're you're starting to realize, and as you do more research, that's not a word. As you do more research, you realize Eisner certainly was of the opinion that Pixar needed Disney more so than Disney needed Pixar. Mm -hmm. Would that be true? Well, let's find out together. (laughs) The third act came with regards to Jobs' disdain for how Pixar acted during the green lighting of Toy Story 2. This is where our previous episode comes into play here. And was taken in concert with the previous Jobs Eisner had thrown Jobs and Pixar's way through the press already. This is all coming courtesy of Richard Verriers and Claudia Eller's article for the LA Times back in 2004. It's a great piece. I highly recommend you go in. It has a lot of background story about Mm -hmm. uh, not only Jobs and Eisner, but Pixar and Disney in general. So anyway, here's what happened. Jobs considered Toy Story 2 and the Gentleman's Agreement with which that property was produced under a, quote, freebie for Disney and vowed to never produce such a sequel to a Pixar property under such circumstances again. And if Pixar were to do so, in Jobs' eyes, the sequel must this time fall under the existing contract between the parties and therefore must count as one of the five movies the two companies' second contract agreement called for. And we remember how Toy Story 2 was, again, a gentleman's agreement. It wasn't part of the five. Jobs essentially is saying, look, we know you kind of had us by the balls here. We stepped up, and we talked about how Lasseter and his whole company stepped in and produced the movie in, what, nine months? That usually takes years. And it was on a technicality that it didn't count for the first deal. Right. Which was insane because it was like the biggest money earner yet. Right. So, Jobs, obviously very protective of his company. You're going to be shocked. Michael Eisner didn't share this sentiment of Steve Jobs this year. And in fact, he would again act bombastically in the press over his belief, reportedly bragging to them about how the leverage he felt Disney had over Pixar with regards to any forthcoming Toy Story 3 sequel, Mm. which would no doubt be another financial windfall for whichever company spearheaded its production. As Eisner no doubt figured, Toy Story 3 was Disney's property to green light and either they would handle the production in-house and keep a hundred percent of the profits for themselves yeah or pixar not wanting to miss out on what would surely be a lucrative box office off the backs of the two prior franchise films they had already made and grossed nearly half a billion dollars domestically for would acquiesce and agree to making the film again in other words jobs believed that eisner was angling for pixar to produce technically a seventh film for the company while still in their original five film deal or just miss out on any funds from toy story 3 altogether that boys and girls is called leverage and it's also something that's you wonder about pixar's negotiating here because pixar should have negotiated it or at least these stipulations, or at least these loopholes, out of this next deal, and they did not. Sure, and they, we did talk talk about that last episode, how they were very unhappy with Disney greenlighting Toy Story 2 without really referring to them, and there was kind of this understood agreement, at least is how it sounded, that any further Pixar sequels, you're going to run by us first, right? And you're right, they probably should have had that in stone, but it was we have more about how Pixar, and specifically Jobs, would negotiate from here on out, Maybe he saw the writing on the wall and was playing Eisner all along. I don't know. We'll see. It's also something that I wonder if Pixar kind of knew that 
Disney was going to have some leverage in this area, but it was going to be a bad look for Disney overall. That's and what I'm thinking. And it was going to bring them to a, another head, and then maybe they can renegotiate once more prior to right. the deal. Like, inspiring. if you think Steve Jobs is this ultimate chess master, as he's proven really yeah. to be throughout he's his professional guys. career. These are brilliant guys. He checkmated Michael Eisner here with this next part. So like. we'll go into incident number four. Jobs, a man with a healthy-sized ego in his own right, and <laughs> usually one to finish with the last laugh, fired back when it came time to negotiate contract number three between Disney and Pixar. Knowing he was dealing with a man he just plain didn't like and now couldn't trust, it was Jobs who crafted drafts of an agreement for the two parties to sign, which he must have known were non-starters. Because, mm-hmm. look, maybe Jobs genuinely thought Pixar was entitled to sole ownership of all titles and properties Pixar had already made for Disney during the course of their first two agreements, as he was reportedly asking for, according to that L.A. Times article. Yeah, there was a lot in the book about Pixar people being upset with how much credit Disney was right. taking and getting, and, of course, the money aspect of it. But in terms of credit, too, they were, they were upset. Now, asking... In retrospect, on your third deal, hey, we want all control and rights of those properties back. Yeah. That's a big ask. That's a big ask. (laughs) Now, maybe he genuinely thought that. Maybe Jobs constructed this proposal specifically because he knew it was a non-starter and he knew he would kind of jab and get under the skin of rival Eisner. He wouldn't do that. Or maybe it's possible that the man man who saw the future of the world of technology multiple times over before anyone else also had the foresight to know what would happen to Eisner's career if the Disney boss said no to Pixar and let them go. Because it was, in fact, Eisner's Disney career which suffered most as a result. No agreement was reached by the sides, and late in January of 2004, Steve Jobs announced that Pixar was moving on after 10 months of negotiations and that Pixar would be looking for a new distributor after the current Disney deal ran out with the completion of Cars 1. It was an announcement that stunned the entertainment world, and as CNN and others hinted at, Pixar would have no shortage of suitors at their disposal, as many studios, from WB to Fox, all made it known to the press how they'd love to be in business with the Toy Story creators. That's also leverage. And Jobs <laughs> knew he was in the driver's seat with regards to the PR battle against Disney, as he would take opportunities to throw haymakers at Disney, such as when Benny Evangelista of the San Francisco Gate reported that Jobs Jobs called recent Disney animated films duds and embarrassing, even going so far as to say on record that while Pixar made smash hits such as Finding Nemo, Disney was busy churning out Treasure Planet and yep. Brother Bear, which were bombs at the box office. I was just going to say Brother Bear earlier. I'm glad you wrote it then. <laughs> yeah, those are duds. Not looking good. And Jobs again here, if you think he's this master chess player, this is him on the attack now. Steve Jobs was certainly getting a lot off his chest with regards to business dealings with Eisner, but if Jobs did in fact pull the plug on the Disney-Pixar deal solely, or at least in part, because he knew Michael Eisner couldn't survive without Pixar, he ultimately would be proven to once again have seen the future before anyone else. Mm. Eisner's failure to get a deal done with Pixar would prove to ultimately be his undoing. A man who led Disney out of their low-revenue 80s, back to animation and global theme park prominence in the 90s, was at the time of his departure in 2005 roughly a decade removed from his last big score for The House of Mouse. And in that time, Eisner even found himself drawing ire from Walt Disney's nephew Roy Disney, Mm -hmm. who grew so disgusted with the direction of 
of the company on Eisner's watch and Eisner's leadership practices that he himself, this being Roy Disney, would step down from the Disney board in 2003, doing so in an effort to spur the board and shareholders to call for Eisner's removal as CEO. So this is a guy that's already faced years of internal strife and is now having pressure put on him from his biggest partner and the biggest salvo, basically, in Pixar. Yeah, and that doesn't look good. You got a guy with the last name Disney who's working right. his butt off. As, Direct as descendant a, of Walt. Yeah. That's, that's, that's Not a, a good bad look. look. Agree. Thus, when Pixar and their, at that time, nearly $3 billion in just box office gross alone they had brought in for Disney, announced they were moving on, it was the final nail in the embattled CEO's coffin. That'll do it. Eisner did finally step down at the end of September 2005 at the behest of the board and shareholders alike. Dictionary.com has a definition of irony. A few, actually. (laughs) Though rather than playing out that trope of reciting a definition and tying it to, to this story, I'll just tell you that to me... Irony would be a guy who Eisner himself once cited as not tough enough and, quote, lacking the creative skills to lead Disney, replacing Eisner as Disney head honcho and pretty much immediately reaching out to make good with Eisner rival Steve Jobs and Pixar. Those quotes via Peter Bart for Deadline this past April. But that was, in fact, the game plan of Eisner replacement Bob Iger from what seemed to be the moment he took Eisner's vacated position. What? I... Okay, so Eisner is like, you got to be tough to lead this, you know, dream factory for children. Yeah, I mean, multi-billion dollar corporation that runs on cartoons. Runs on cartoons. <laughs> right. Runs on the joy of children. And you got to be a tough guy. You got to be tough. You got to be creative. SOB. Come on. This certainly, well, if, if nothing else, it falls in line with what we've heard about thus far about Eisner's personality. Right. Right. It does. Katzenberg and Iser for that. Yeah, true, true story there. Iger always knew Pixar was valuable to the Disney brand while working under Eisner as Disney's president and COO, but he probably didn't understand just how valuable the animation studio was until he did the math. In Jobs' biography, written by Walter Isaacson, with this excerpt courtesy of JimHillMedia.com... A good book, too, by the way. Iger explained that Disney Animation as a standalone studio was a money loser over the past 10 years under Michael Eisner. And though Eisner always pitched that Pixar needed Disney more than vice versa, Iger believed the financials to be telling the opposite story. That info, combined with Iger's realization when opening Disneyland in Hong Kong that virtually every costume character in the parade was of a property created not by Disney, but by Pixar, was all the motivation Iger needed to present Disney's board with one of three options. Mm -hmm. Either stay the course and probably keep losing money, try to shake up the in-house management and see if that reverses Disney Animation's recent fortunes, or just offer to buy Pixar. And we know now which of these options sounded most palatable to the board. Duh. (laughs) Luckily for Disney, Iger and Jobs hit it off quite well, and it became a little clearer that, yeah, sure, okay, maybe Jobs' ego did, in fact, keep the Pixar king from negotiating in good faith with Eisner and Disney, as after not being able to complete a deal with Eisner during a 10-month negotiation, Disney and Iger were able to complete the total purchase and acquisition of Pixar for $7.4 billion in less than four months after Iger stepped in as CEO of Disney. That is incredible. Imagine negotiating for 10 months knowing (laughs) that you're basically going to just set up a long game so that you can get the other side of the table fired. Yeah. (laughs) Steve Jobs, not not a ruthless man. (laughs) That is a ruthless, ruthless maneuver. Uh, Yeah, I, I agree. And again, we're giving... It takes a leap of faith if you believe he did have that foresight, but 
from what we know about the guy, there's no reason to doubt this wasn't well, part of his plan. Maybe he's, he's thinking he knows what he can be offered outside, and he knows he's got that in his back, Plenty of back suitors. pocket. Yep. So he's going to have the suitors. So bottom line is he's like, all right, we're going to do a deal that's great for us this time yeah. because we've earned it right. or else. Right. You know, So you either negotiate with us and we'll be with you as long as you, you want, and we'll give you that opportunity, but if, if you don't come to our side of the table, our side of the deal here, it's not happening. I saved Apple. I can save Disney, but I'm not going to let you ruin that for me. <laughs> yeah, but, but he doesn't have to save Pixar because Pixar's already No, he's up. not saving Pixar at, this, at all. Yeah. At this point, Pixar is super-duper ridiculously right. successful. And even, just apples to apples comparison, Pixar should be the company with the leverage here, yeah. right? And, and Jobs was wise enough to recognize it. Oh, he took it. advantage. He took full <laughs> advantage. So this story is amazing in and of itself, but yeah. it's worth going through Jim Hill Media com to read those excerpts from Jobs' book or just read the book in told because on jimhillmedia.com he does go on to describe how Eisner, still a big stockholder of Disney's at the time and a powerful man in entertainment with powerful friends such as Warren Buffett was actually allowed to come back to the Disney boardroom after his departure to present the case as to why purchasing Pixar was an unwise business move for the Disney shareholders. What? But it was Iger's vision and plan which the company trusted most obviously. A trust which has gone from Disney not only reclaiming the throne of rulers of the animation world, but also to Disney completely reinvigorating their own animation department, yeah. to latter-day purchases of studios such as Lucasfilm and Marvel Studios, which means that Bob Iger is likely the person to blame for every time you're having gone to a department store with a young child in your life, and they end up costing you $20 whenever you pass the toy section. This is incredible, because the Pixar-Disney deal that they finally reached here basically set the future of the movie two industry. Studios. Yeah. Two, two major animation studios. And you're right, yeah, pretty much the industry at large. Because after Marvel goes there and after Lucasfilm, now we have a just a absolute juggernaut in terms of box office and what we've gotten for the last 10 or 15 years where we were complaining about tentpole cinema, tentpole cinema, mm-hmm. tentpole cinema, but we finally get it done for the most part correctly or done well and then we're happier, right? And we, we got a lot of great movies out of it. And we wonder if they're going too far, which is going to be an interest, interesting conversation we're going to continue to have. They are. <laughs> but After the Fox deal. Right. I think what's important here is if you read about the acquisition, whatever you want to call it, yeah. you know, Disney acquiring Pixar in total, a lot of times a lot of big headline acquisition company deals when, when one company either consumes another or goes in partnership with them. Uh, I forget which article it was, but they, they highlight like Times Warner, NBC Universal. A lot of those pretty much weren't even. They were one company having to change everything yeah. and go towards the other company, the bigger company with more powers way of doing business. And that wasn't the case. And Iger gets a lot of credit for that. That wasn't the case with Disney Pixar. Iger said, you're going to be a standalone independent. You're going to do your own thing, do whatever you want. Pixar was obviously worried about that at first because Eisner was a type of guy that would seem to promise one thing and do another. So yeah. why would they trust that? But Iger, through all his credit, he gets glowing reviews and glowing recommendations from anyone that I've read about because he truly let Pixar grow as they were and just more so integrated Disney into the Pixar method more than vice versa. Yes. So and he gets a, should get a world of credit as a businessman and a CEO. I also want to say that that is something distinct from the other two deals, really the other three yes. deals. 
you know, Marvel Studios was coming over after some successes, but, you know, they bought a piece of what Marvel mm-hmm. was at the time, and then they expanded on that. That, that, was, a very, that was an investment, betting on futures, yep. essentially. And then you buy Lucasfilm. All right, you got an established brand that put out three products that hurt its brand essentially the prequels so you make that move to to basically create a continuation of the saga that deal wasn't as surefire as you might think again it's a different kind of deal now the fox deal fox was losing money or fox wasn't making as much money as it wanted for so long that company overall the the corporation wants to do other things and now you have fox kind of selling its movie industry to Disney. Giving it over to Disney wholesale. And what is Disney doing with it? Disney's reshaping Parsing it out. Parsing it yeah. out, reshape it. They don't want certain things. Right. They really want others. I would say the only the only caveat to that is when you acquire Lucasfilms, and obviously that's not the point of this episode, but if Cars was $8 billion over five years in toys and licensing merchandise, oh, what was, Lucas what was Lucasfilm? Even with the trilogy, oh the God. prequel trilogy. Yeah, you know? so that was, that was a big... So I'm sure that's a deal that paid for itself at it was some point. It a big purchase, right. let's say. <laughs> <laughs> Bigger than the average Christmas shopping spree <laughs> right. that Mike or I might do. So, that is the story. We are finally done and all caught up. We have only Toy Story 3 to go as far as background for Pixar and where they stood at the time, but that is the story of how Pixar became part of Disney and no longer two separate properties. Wow. The stories behind the overall Pixar story. Amazing stuff. Before the Toy Story, before the Toy Story. <laughs> That's. I think you said that accurately. I think that was accurate. If I we didn't have a character on I would put that as the title of this episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I appreciate the nod there. All right. So essentially what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about what stood out to us in terms of a non-spoiler review for each film. So we're going to do a non-spoiler review for Cars 1 to start things off. And Michael, let me just talk about the world building a minute. I have I have similar questions, so I'm glad you put this down. I have down. so many. I'm going to rip them off. Yes. If this is an entire world where the dominant species is motor vehicles, correct? then why are there windows and doors to these cars? Why do they have windows and doors? I don't get it. I understand that their eyes are windshields, I, but what does that mean? Their butts and vaginas and <laughs> penises are the doors? Or the what? What's I tried going on? So hard to stay G-rated as long as I could. I think that's a rational question. All right, fine. The heinies and their noonies and their well, it's it's, weenies. it's a good. <laughs> thank you. It's a fair question because a bathroom and somebody going to the bathroom plays a large role in Cars too. Yeah. You know, so it's fair to ask. Obviously, they do relieve themselves in some ways. Wow, what does this mean? That was the whole <laughs> worthwhile of Cars 2, by the way. I'm going to get to that. But So when the Judgment Day happened where the AI uh, overcame all the humans... I mean, these cars are these are these are cocky cars, man, and these are these are spiteful or whatever. They they love their dramatic irony because basically they defeat the humans in an all-out war, catastrophic losses on one side. <laughs> right. And this yet is the we cars see, prequel. <laughs> yeah, we see none of that anywhere. No, they just totally just assume our way of life and yeah. they love it. Also, they're capable of building racetrack stadiums that are big enough to have audiences and crowd seats that are fitting one car per right. seat. So these things must just be massive, massive. in scope. <laughs> they outdone us. They've outdone us the way They're capable works. of building small, yeah. intricate statues mm-hmm. as homages to their founders. They're capable of building giant businesses and giant stadiums. Mm-hmm. Of course they're going to defeat the humans. I mean, look, every house should be a garage. Yes! But it's not. No! That's a little weird. But they have instituted the technology and solved the problem of how when cars need to be lifted... 
they've just put the technology and the electronics of having lifts everywhere they need them. Yeah. Which is genius and a lot of forethought on their part. They're car overlords. They deserve they deserve Absolutely. the win. Absolutely. I just I wonder do they reproduce? There are still it's a good car question. factories. Because there's kid uh, cars. They, we see them. I mean, they talk a lot of foreplay. At the end of each movie, Mike, it is I was nothing... saving it for worsts. These are the most sexualized Pixar movies of the fucking franchise. I think they have sex. Like immediately, <laughs> like the the post credit scenes should have just been these cars boning. It really should have been because they're just just constantly like, oh my god. There's these so cars many innuendos just in Cars One. There's so many innuendos. Lightning McQueen gets asked if he's gonna pose for Car Girl yeah. magazine. What? <laughs> so that exists. It exists. <laughs> Who reads it? They don't have hands or thumbs. I don't know. Magazines shouldn't exist. Right. <laughs> it makes no sense. All right, so what, what do I really take away from Cars 1? I love the races. Larry the Cable Guy actually made me laugh twice. I agree. And this was during the height of that blue-collar comedy tour, too, so it was kind yeah. of a, a boon that they got Larry the Cable Guy. The middle, though, was kind of a, a BS fest, and I don't love the middle. I don't love the town stuff, Act 2. I love the first act race. I love the act three race. I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And I kind of fell asleep or really stopped paying attention in the middle. How about I you? Got, I got problems with the middle. We, we saw this film similarly. I, I think we actually saw all three similarly. But yeah, I agree. I have problems with the middle as well. I was stunned by how Toy Story 2 looked. I mean, the animation in this one, which came out in 06, which was just a couple years removed from Toy Story 2, it looked like generations have passed. Yeah. With the first-person view of lightning going in and out of the racetrack and in and out of the smoke there, it looked amazing it for does 2006. Look amazing. And I love that they're out there in the Grand Canyon. I mean, the right. it, is, it is beautiful. And then the races are incredible with all the lights going on in the stadium. I, I loved it. Yeah. So I, I agree with that. But um, you're right. Plot, plots left a lot to be desired. Was, yeah. But it's a shining example of how to do something compared to its sequel. Correct. But they're trying to sell toys, so right. it's fine. Cars 2 now. So Mess. the planes and the boats, they're slaves to the cars. I guess they sided with the humans <laughs> during the Judgment Day War. Did, didn't Disney make a planes <laughs> movie? Somebody made a planes movie. <laughs> Nobody knows. It's been lost to history. And Mike can't look at it. And also, we don't want to look dumb. Uh, all right. So forcing a spy narrative in the cars... Two might have been the dumbest, most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. To me, this signaled something as clear as day. The John Lasseter or whoever's behind these movies. This is Lasseter, yeah. The, he's bored of making kids' movies, or he's bored of making this. It's movie. an interesting take. Go ahead. And I think he's fighting himself on this because why is this a spy? It's so. Like, there's no flow between the first spy montage and then, all right, we're back to racing. Like, what the hell are they it's, doing? It's very forced. Like, I, I actually enjoyed, like, once they got back to the normal thing. And I think they recognize it, too, because what do you? what is the third movie? The third movie is a sports fleece again. It's a sports movie. It's a racing movie. Good. They have an action sequence in this movie oh. where Larry the Cable Guy's Mater Mater fights off other cars as if his tires were fists. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's so dumb. <laughs> this is maybe the worst movie. I've, I I don't mean that hyperbolically. I hate being so negative. This this movie felt like it was three days long to me. Like, I, I could not get through it. The middle 40 minutes, like, if I was being tortured to death right now, I couldn't tell you what happened. I oh, zoned, I can. <laughs> I zoned out completely. That's why we're going to get bad. into it. Yeah, it's Yeah, it's not good. I know, like, Act 1 and Act 3, you get that leaky booby... <laughs> <laughs> you get the Talladega Nights uh, narrative going on here. Eriki. And I like that you got an Italian instead of 
you know, the the Frenchman there. Yeah. It basically Talladega Nights sandwiched in to just this Disney Channel spy nonsense idiot yeah. narrative. Yeah. And you may be spot on there as far as Lasseter goes and being bored with the property I overall. Bored. That could be something to that. Because uh, this, I mean, the inciting incident for this entire movie, this entire spy narrative is over Wasabi. Yeah. That's the how we get going it's here. Terrible. It's ridiculous. And it's, yeah, I think he's like being a producer on Incredibles 1 there. And then I think he's watching his buddy, Brad Bird, do that thing. And all right, maybe this is a new way to do things for Pixar. We're going to do some spy stuff. And we got all these great characters yeah, that people be. are buying a bajillion toys of. So they're like, all right, let's make it an action thing. Oh, what a terrible decision. It did allow them to introduce a new set of cars to make toys off of because the whole bad guy syndicate was all new characters. Mater has how many disguises? Yeah. And they all have how many paint right. jobs in this movie? Good point. Yeah, it's just so transparent. So maybe that was also their thinking. Like, let's just fucking, let's make products, baby. Let's yeah. license. Isn't it ironic, though, that the direct-to-video quality sequel that Lasseter, John Lasseter, saved Toy Story 2 from becoming yeah. became Cars 2, Great directed point. by John Lasseter? Great point, yeah. That's Great point. terrible irony. You got anything else on Cars 2? Oh, yes, I do, but All we'll right. wait. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Cars 3, I just got a few quick things on that. Uh, some fairly good drama early. I like that they went this direction. Again, it's Talladega Nights. Oh, no, this is Rocky. It's Rocky. This but is it, Rocky. Yeah, you know, right, Talladega Nights, I <laughs> This is Rocky, Rocky 4 specifically, where Drago has all the technology to train with, <laughs> and Rocky has to rely on, like, flipping logs and stuff and climbing yeah. mountains. I mean, basically, uh, whatever, red race car guy, he could have been running around in his underwear tra- during training. <laughs> right. Like, I'm on fire! <laughs> <laughs> they could have been in the med- yeah, cut around me. And they could have had all those scenes in this right, movie. that's but- fair. But you're right. It's based on Rocky. Holy on the nose dialogue, Batman. It's just so bad. So is this movie... I was actually impressed by this movie. And I wonder, is that because my expectations were just in the Decimated. trash can? yeah. Definitely. Or is this actually a decent... I mean, 70% on a tomato meter is not terrible. I don't think it's worth 70% because okay. I have some problems. Because I think the narrative is forced. I think the... Really? Okay. I, I think I liked... I quite like this movie, to be honest with you. It really bothered me. You That's know, fair. It's written by eight men, directed by a man. Yeah. And then we get this yeah. half-assed yeah. feminist statement that is not earned and totally preposterous by the rules of any racing sport <laughs> in the history of mankind before mankind was overtaken by the dominant species of motor vehicles i too have issues with that (laughs) (laughs) so cars through his total bullshit that gets me very angry hire women hire anybody who could tell a personal story and not this gibber gibberish nonsense but let's let's dance please so not an oscar contender (laughs) no i don't like it makes me angry all right let's dance (laughs) spoilers ahead was the fastest pit stop I've ever seen. It was a great stop, but he's still got to beat that race car out. It's going to be close. Yeah, 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 this is the spoiler section for the Cars franchise. Cars, Cars 2, and Cars 3 as part of the Disney... It's not Disney. I don't know why I keep saying... Di- it's because I did so much goddamn research, yeah. Disney Pixar. <laughs> as part of the Pixar rewatch series brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. If you've not 
seen the movies. Now I'm all befuddled. If you've not seen the movies yet, this is a good place for you to hit pause, go watch them. It'll take you a day and a half, but go watch them. Come back and hit play. We'll be here waiting for you. If you've seen the movies already, if you're just interested in hearing our thoughts about the spoilers, or if we've hyped up the, I guess, complaints that are forthcoming so much for you that you cannot go another minute without hearing them, this is where you want to be. It's all spoilers all the time for Cars, Cars 2, and Cars 3. The Cars franchise as part of the Pixar rewatch series brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. All that being said, Mike, we're going to take these one movie at a time without jumping ahead. So the first, whatever, five, ten minutes will be Cars 1, and then Cars 2, and then Cars 3. Check out our show notes uh, on SoundCloud or anywhere, and you can find out all the demarcation lines there. Check out show notes for every episode because Mike does a hell of a job with them puts in a lot of jokes so we're going to start as we do Thanks. with the spoiler section you're welcome buddy uh, Mouth full of water but it was a compliment <laughs> where I was like oh I almost go- choked because <laughs> I didn't believe you but thank you uh, anything to help you choke uh, we're going to start as we usually do we have the 22 rules of Pixar screenwriting success we're going to match them up but like Mike just said since we're going movie by movie we're not going to go three rules bang 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 we're going to go one rule one movie talk the spoilers for the movie and then talk the second movie so Mike rule number one or for the Cars franchise and rule number I don't know what it is yeah it's 17 17 now. good lord uh and rule number 17 reads no work is ever wasted if it's not working let go and move on it'll come back around to be useful later so this is one of those pep talky rules to the 22 rules of storytelling mm-hmm. that pixar likes to throw in and it's a bit obvious but it's necessary and it's good advice and screenwriters we can get bullheaded and lost in certain whatever modus operandi because we a narrative like a spy narrative we can get stuck on things often and i really love that they put these rules in there i mean rule this works in conjunction with rule number nine try what won't work to spark what will work basically a bad idea to help you you know spark new ideas to to write to fix it and rule number 11 of just getting it down on paper and then fix it from there basically the golden rule of rewriting i would say so this one works well with that because it's, it's telling you that even your failures are worthwhile. It's telling you that even whatever you put on page on the page, if it doesn't work, that's okay. Move on, figure out what's next because screenwriting, it's just so hard. You need that encouragement and you also need to just keep going forward. So I really like that. I think that's a useful uh, advice. Probably most useful during the brainstorming effort too when yes. you're coming up with your plot structure and your narrative and your through lines because... It goes back to that old adage, there's no such thing as a stupid question, there's no such thing as a bad idea. I mean, this is it. Everything that you do come up with, at some point, you could use it all if you really want to, but if if it's not working, you could ditch it, and if it is, you could figure out a way to put it in. We saw Toy Story 1 cutting room scenes found their way into Toy Story 2, and Mm -hmm. there's some of the best scenes in Toy Story 2. Uh, that we, we talked about in the last episode. As for this script, uh, Cars 1 is is really a useful study in terms of the sports fleece genre. And it, it's also something that really helps you uh, in terms of setting your movie. This is a movie with a, a an extraordinary world after an ordinary world. Right. You return to the ordinary world, which is really not that ordinary, but it, it, you're racing and a high-level racing. So <laughs> it's fun. I mean, it, it, it makes a lot of sense, and you can learn a lot from it. The genre conventions of, of a sports movie are, are really easily outlineable and identifiable there. So I, I like this movie in regards to that. I like this movie the most, Cars 1, to be honest with you. And I guess we can jump into heartbreaks and happiness now, Michael. Well, the biggest... I'm going to start like this. <laughs> <laughs> Leaning forward. Is it just me, or was it awfully difficult to have 
any kind of emotional attachment throughout any three of these each of these movies. I thought that was going to happen totally, but it I it broke through to me a few times this franchise. Okay. It did. And the most emotional is the wrong word, but the most invested I mm-hmm. got was in this movie by the sportsmanship on display at the end. Okay, I, that makes I love sense. That. I mean, our coach that, still you that like happens in that, track. Yeah. You know, that happens in track sometimes, and it's a really powerful moment. Lightning's about to win the race. He stops just short of the finish line, goes and helps the king who got spun out yeah. by Chick. Chick ends up getting first place, and nobody cares. Yeah. No, he could have totally uh, finished the finished race, race first. Finished the race and go back. And then went back because he had plenty of time. <laughs> right. And he still, still would have been legal based on, you know. So well, Apparently rules to. don't apply in this world with this no, race the rules are yeah. great. Like, these guys are, sorry, they're nerds. They don't know <laughs> the stand sports rules at all. And in the third movie, that's really going to come to the fruition. Any heartbreaks for you, though, at all? So, I, like, invested is a fine word. I, I, I don't know, much akin to how I felt about Toy Story 2 when Jesse's singing, and I know that's when we're supposed to be feeling the most heartbreak. Right. When this song comes on and Sally is talking lightning through how the town used to be, I know I'm supposed that like that's supposed to be the emotional crux and spurring the face turn and spurring the the, the growing of the heart. You yeah. know, three heart grew three sizes that one day uh, in <laughs> Lightning McQueen. I understand that and I see it and I think it did a fine enough job of explaining it and setting it up, but I just didn't have it. Maybe it's because this song was painfully on the nose and that kind of took away part of it for me. But I think that, as far as investment, emotional investment goes, is where I was closest for yeah, Cars that 1. that town is just, I, I think it's so ridiculous, that whole narrative, when you get into it in more <laughs> scenes. But okay. in terms of happiness and best stuff first, I, you know, I like the intro. I, like I said, I really enjoyed that race, the gorgeous stadium animations, yes. the Michael Jordan tongue joke when Red Race Car gets in the air, midair there. I like how you just refuse to use his name. What's his name? Lightning McQueen. Oh He's only it's the a great name. for right. three episodes. Right, let, me, let me give him a thumbs up for that name, because that name should never lose a race ever uh you know i like the mater stuff when they get in the other town i know this may be a bad time right now but you owe me thirty-two thousand dollars in legal fees <laughs> that was good that was good i agree it's a great joke i did not expect i've never been a larry the cable guy guy yeah. my brother always appreciated him i i like the blue collar comedy to it but i never understood the appeal of him but i thought he was very good in this movie made me laugh uh, a couple different times so i enjoyed that you know, the whole cow tipping thing with the tractors. I like how the beasts... Why can't Pixar get speed right? No, they can't. Bullseye can keep up with a jet <laughs> on the tarmac in Toy Story 2. This giant bale hay, bale or hay machine can keep up with Lightning McQueen, who's yeah. supposed to be the fastest race car in the world? Look, I wouldn't have argued if Mater got run over and, <laughs> and killed, murdered viciously there. Would have been a twist. Would have been a big twist. But yeah, right after the fun and games moment right. of Act 1. I would have loved this movie. Uh, but whatever. I mean, it's, it's fine. You know, you got him buying tires at the end, organic fuel, more stickers, a new paint job. Mike, he has Stockholm Syndrome. We're going to get into this. Because this <laughs> maybe, is effed up. Maybe. Finally, I, I thought they were going to go like it was a hallucination that all the other cars were there at the end. Really? At why? his race. Because why? Why are they there? They're crazy stalkers who just can't let their prey leave. Well, no, he had the connection with Hudson Hawk or Hornet or whoever he is. And he was, Tater obviously took a liking to him. Sally took a liking to him. I I didn't have a problem with that. I don't know. Could be me issue. I don't know. And porno movie dialogue at the end. Bad. Yeah. Bad. But also. Funny. Kind of (laughs) hot. 
All right, so let's get it to worse seats because I got, I got something. You got stuff to get off your chest. Go ahead. These people are insane. These car people are insane maniacs. They need to be stopped and like uh, locked up because this is a kangaroo court. This is a kangaroo court that enslaves this this race car to manual labor. He can easily, easily send whatever he needs to send all the the, the the trucks and whatever to fix that road in a matter of hours he's got the money he can do it if they could sue him but he shouldn't be strapped to a whatever and and held as a prisoner basically tortured with a fire hose by these crazy locals that just start to spruce up the place <laughs> after he arrived. What were they doing? Were they just sitting there waiting for anybody to show up? And tear up the road. Yeah. So, oh my God. I agree with the sentiment. My counter to that will be they also allowed Larry the Cable Guy to just walk in and be his lawyer on a moment's notice. So it's not like their legal system is hard and fast with rules anyway. It's or insane. all that are comparable to the human one. Or maybe it is. I don't know. Mike, I, I mean, look, you're the lawyer. So I'm coming to you for legal advice here. If, like, I commit property damage. Right. Would I be sued? Would I be imprisoned? Fine. But I wouldn't be forced to uh, fix that property damage. I can yeah, barely like change a life. Community service. Maybe yeah, community that could service be for something else that I can do. Right. I wouldn't be forced no, to No, would you fix be enslaved by the... No, you would not. By the community by the where I committed that property damage. That's right. ridiculous. And he has Stockholm Syndrome to them. <laughs> so you he, think he's been there too yes, long? Yes, every single thing. Like, he's being watched by Mater, and then he becomes best friends with Mater. And, of course, Mater's the creepiest person ever. He's like, he's my best friend now. <laughs> Like 15 minutes into their lives together. Affection is a big problem through this movie, not only with the Mater character, but also Sally. Sally and, and, and Lightning apparently have this love story, even though they only share two scenes together. Why? And it's he just, points out her tramp stamp. It's infatuation. Yeah. That's it. Right. And all she Agreed. cares about for three movies is sexy cars. Right. And that's all she's just like, yeah, he really revs my engine. <laughs> What's the difference between her and the other character, the woman character, who's just like, you know, catcalling all the boy cars? <laughs> For three movies. Well, What's the difference? You brought it up in non There should be a woman in this writer's room, and that would have really helped a lot, but there just was not. There's not. Yeah. It's just this the woman here is just like, woohoo, you look good. <laughs> yeah. Give me a break. Yeah. For uh, three movies. I agree. Totally agree. Absolutely have an issue with it. Also have an issue with the just the stuffing down your throat. Of, we're not a regular Pixar movie. We're a cool Pixar movie. Listen to all these rock stars and rock songs we're going to introduce yeah. you with. Cheryl Crow, Rascal Flatts, John Mayer covering Route 66 in the end credits. Yeah, I was kind of numb to it. Yeah. I, I don't hate the music Did not like or it. anything, but yeah, I don't love it either. But I mean, it looks good. It, it, I like the the end race. I like the beginning sure. race. So the movie still kind of works for me, but the middle is just Planet it's of bad. the Apes. My, the, the best part of this movie was the credit sequence of John Ratzenberger and Mac character. I wish how they're reenacting was. all yeah. the Pixar films with cars as the actors, and Ratzenberger's like, wait, they're just using the same guy for all these roles. <laughs> they should have just leaned into the fact that it was a kangaroo court and complete nonsense. Right, sure. And, and then, you know, just leaned into the fact that he had Stockholm Syndrome and laughed it <laughs> off. Because that is Stockholm Syndrome. It, it just... Textbook. I'm not a psychologist <laughs> or psychiatrist. That's textbook so Stockholm Syndrome. I also laughed very hard when that statue of their founder was knocked off its perch and then it just flew back and landed right landed back right where it was. Yeah, it's terrible. That, that tickled me. Yeah, you liked it? <laughs> that's liked that. so preposterous. <laughs> that you, that's fine. And how about, yeah, how's that old lady car still alive? Like, Do she, they die? Do any of them die? They must. She's because alive how, all three movies. I know we said we were going to, it's right. a bit thing, but she's alive all three movies. 
just ridiculous. Maybe the Cars world, because they don't die, they just kind of stick around, they lose consciousness, but they're still pieces. they rot in a graveyard. Maybe that's the world that becomes the Wally world. Huh. So there's just a bunch of, because you can't but do no, anything. No, you got the humans there. But the, maybe, oh, so you think the humans. The humans took off already. They're gone already. They're on the spaceship getting oh, fat. Oh, and then the Wally world. Okay, I get what you're saying. Cars 2, Michael. That's that's fascinating. We should do an entire What If episode <laughs> on that. All right, Cars 2, rule number 18 of the 22 rules. Don't watch this movie. <laughs> rule number 18 states, you have to know yourself. The difference between doing your best and fussing. Story is testing, not refining. And this is a fascinating hmm. distinction. I wish they used it in Cars 2. Yeah, could have could have been worthwhile there. Because they should have tested whether or not they right. could have written a spy narrative around these races first, which they can't do. They can't they can't do it. Man, at least not this one. That's it for does sure. Does not work. And they admit that mistake based on the narrative and the premise and the entire freaking plot of Cars 3. Yeah. So obviously they admit it. And this just didn't work from the jump, but they don't know themselves. They they just like use this rule to say, all right, we're not going to fuss over this thing that doesn't work. They're trying to jam this story in, and maybe that was their fussing. They're like, we have to have a spy novel. I saw what the Incredibles was going to be. We have to have. We could outdo them. Maybe it was an ego check by Lasseter, like like you were kind of hinting at earlier. But oh, I wasn't hinting at it. I was (laughs) stating it pretty clearly. Well, it just does not work, and my God, does it take away from the movie? Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about unbelievable things that cars can do. Michael Caine's car is a, capable of not only climbing tiny ladders, but holding on to the side of giant tanker ships in the first 15 minutes of this movie. <laughs> what can these cars not do? What was the whole point of that? Yeah, like, uh, why did he go there to and then To see come... the cameras. Because the cameras were used at the I end zoned of the out. It's a bad movie. I zoned out so many times during this movie. So maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought, but it it's didn't bad. hold my attention. Do, do you have heartbreak from this at all? I don't. I just have a few things that kind of worked for me. That's not really happiness, but it's some best scenes. This was my best day ever. My favorite souvenir. This new dent. <laughs> Mater's funny. Mater is funny. I agree. My name is Mater. I'll be your waiter. <laughs> I like that. You think I just got line. this job to try to stalk you too? And the best scene of the movie is to figure out what a hell a car's bathroom looks like. The fact that it has a bidet... <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that, you know, their oil is their poop and pee. And, like, oh, my God. I, I, and then Mater comes up, whatever you do, don't go in there. <laughs> it's kind of it's funny. So stupid. Yeah. I don't understand that. Those stalls must be gigantic in the car's bathrooms. The only thing in Mater... Mater does play such an integral role. I wonder kind of if he's seen as the scapegoat for this movie, mm-hmm. and that's why he's kind of reduced severely in Cars 3, but he plays a huge role in this movie. The only thing close to a heartbreak I have is that letter he gives us saying goodbye halfway through where he's like, you know, lightning tells him off, and so Mater's like, all right, I guess I'll leave my best friend then. And again, I wasn't like crazy about it because I had just seething hatred for this movie. Yeah, you say that like I should remember. It. I have no <laughs> recollection. I like, the, uh, I like the announcers at the race. Is Brent Mustang Burger, which is pretty funny. You know, I love the way Italy looked. I love the the way Japan looked. I mean, it really it was really cool. The visuals. I like Francesco. I like him. We, okay. The guy that's at the starting line with Lightning McQueen. The two of them are the fastest ones, and he's just like. Uh, <laughs> he's talking about lightning how lightning's homesick yeah and he goes i know you must be homesick i know what that's like no joke but uh i'm homesick too but of course i am home my mom my mom's right there <laughs> hey, mama i'm gonna beat lightning he's sad 
right, that's a good joke. I like that. That's yeah. a good joke. I don't remember it because I was probably <laughs> right. on the computer. It's probably on the computer, but that's a good joke. All right, I agree with that. Uh, and then the end of this movie is the you know foreplay to a porn nineteen. 19- <laughs> 70s softcore <laughs> porn movie. It's just like the plumber comes over. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, there's a lot of bad in this movie. Uh, I hated the pistachio ice cream. No, we're still in the good. I, I think, oh, the, I think the foreplay was good. You thought the foreplay was good? Because <laughs> it made me laugh. It was so bad that it was good. No, I'm okay. kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. All right, let's get into worse scenes. Like I said, the inciting incident to this entire spy thing oh. is made her confusing wasabi for pistachio ice cream at an all-you-could-eat buffet type thing and then going on stage because... Awful. Awful. Awful, awful writing. Uh, oh, God. I was... I did not like that. I just hate that they hint at all these serious things. Like, you got these sadistic evil spy cars, who, of course, are just you know, basically the bad guy from Indiana Jones. Right. You know, <laughs> a germ, sadistic German one. But you have torture, you have bombs, you have death to slave boats, you have, you know, heroes acting as terrorists in the finale. Yeah. That was a not-so-subtle move to take the bomb to the queen and say, hey, stop it. To the antagonist and the queen. Stop it or die. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, turning of the tables. Yeah. It was a lot. I also, like, everybody's crashing. Everybody's dying on this course. The guy that created all in all this natural resource replacement for gas is like, I can't let people use all in all anymore. It's causing too much death and destruction. And Lightning's like, I already lost one friend. I'm not going to lose another. I'll still use the gas replacement that's been killing everybody on the course. <laughs> and I have no proof isn't the cause of it. Right. That's terrible. It, yeah, no, this narrative sucks. It's a really dumb movie. I can't. It's been a long time. Since I've had something that, like, I'm like, oh, that might be 1408 or Good Shepherd territory for me. This movie was bad. I mean, a Mater line summed it up for me. This ain't nothing li- at all like Radiator Springs. And I <laughs> yeah, agree. No kidding. That's, that's why it really sucks, even though Radiator Springs is kind of stupid, too. Mater is the bomb, and he's yelling oh. at Lightning, stay away from me. But Lightning's just like, oh, no, I was mean to you. I have to be close to you now when you're Ugh. a bomb. Ugh. Terrible. No. Don't watch Cars 2. It queen. doesn't exist. One and three are fine on their own. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're watchable. I, li- I like all the foo-foo uh, royals that are Cars. I like that at the very end. Gotta sell those products, baby. Yeah. Turn them into toys. That's fine. All right, Cars 3 now. <laughs> cars 3, Michael. Yeah, rule number 19 states, and this is interesting, coincidences to get characters into trouble are great. Coincidences to get them out of it are cheating. Now, I like this rule. We say this all the time. We do. I've said it a little differently because I don't like late movie coincidences. I'm going to make that distinction in a minute. But this rule is proven true by a couple recent films that we've reviewed. Toy Story 2, yes. We did did that in the Pixar series. Mm -hmm. But we also did Pulp Fiction. And Pulp Fiction, there are plenty of coincidences that get those characters into trouble. And early in the movie, late in the movie, they can work. Audience members will tolerate them, and I totally agree. And it happens uh, a little bit in these Cars movies. It happens a lot bit in the second one. However, <laughs> I don't think they use this rule crazy a crazy amount in the third movie in particular, so I don't think it really fits. Here's what I want to say, though. I prefer it when you build up causality throughout the film. Sure. To have causality rule 
at the third act, at least. Right. At and least. Because otherwise, you're bordering on something that could be Deus Ex Machina or check off something, you know. To throw all the wrenches in at the yeah. last second, all the unexpected things at the last second, even if it gets you into trouble and you got to overcome it, it still it tends to bother me. So, this is one of the first rules that I kind of quibble with. I was surprised that that happened. Like I said, I don't remember any late movie coincidences in. Uh, Cars 2, other than the fact that it's a coincidence that they think they're going to a regular race and they go to, like, the, the derby, the de- demolition derby, which was kind of funny. Cars 3. Cars 3, yeah. correct. Right. Yeah. It's a later movie. Mid-movie, I guess. I think I was just so happy to be done with 2. <laughs> I think I honestly was just... I, that is, you know, it, it's a rule that we do talk about, maybe not in the exact terms you're right, but I think, uh, overall, the idea that your movie can't end or your hero can't overcome just purely due to coincidences is probably a, a standard one or one you want to kind of abide by to, to have a decent script. All right, so heartbreaks and happiness. I mean, they start off with a heartbreak. I mean, when Lightning McQueen gets in the uh, car crash there, that's pretty intense. That's that, that was a normal beginning, and then that's rough. Yeah. So that's, that's a, He's getting old. He's getting old. Dealing with crashing. mortality. Even cars have to deal with mortality, Michael. They and do. the end of their primes. They do. And it's, it's sad because we know that Paul Newman was is dead in real life and in the movies. Yeah. And, you know, he keeps showing up. A little so homage to him. Yeah, that was kind of cool. You got the big corporate overlord taking over. And now the trainer character of Cruz, introduced as a complete doofus that really doesn't know how, racing. Complete doofus that doesn't know She doesn't know, know the, yeah, doesn't know the elements. Yeah, and you're she, right. Outdoors. And she's set up as this character that just is... It has to be coached from the beginning, which, all right, fine. And I think that was clever. It did work as far as circular story writing. It comes back to a head on the end of it because she's the one that's going to play hero here, but she needs it's lightnings fine. input. The yeah, beach I ate it. me. I mean, in right. terms of a happiness moment, it's fun to watch them training that way. It's kind of Rocky Three-ish. And yes, I like it. Yes. I like anything. And I thought her heartbreak moment, too, saying that, like, basically... I only got into race. I, got, I wanted to be a racer because of you, but I found out I didn't have it. I didn't have it in me, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, there's a lot that of adversity marginal. to yeah. overcome. So the heartbreaks are, are, are working, I would say. In terms of the ha- happiness, I do like the Demolition Derby. I like Cars 3, Fury Road, Twisted Metal, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and it's an, a thoroughly ridiculous scene, but a very amusing one. I like the cutaways back to them in the bar, watching it, like yeah. the big school bus there. That was funny. They said Thunder Road! <laughs> All right, so do you have any more bests there, Mike? Uh, I got some things I liked. I liked the simulator. Okay, uh, yep. When when Lightning gets on it for the first time and he's being brash and boastful in the simulator, he's just like, you have named two vehicles. You are on fire. <laughs> you have crashed. So calmly, and he's embarrassing yeah. himself on there. I like that. I like to go to the beach, and then she's got the treadmill there. Yeah. <laughs> It's a nice place to run. <laughs> Put him on a treadmill. Uh, the only other happiness I have is 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 right at the top, and what I said at the outset, how this is basically the homages to Rocky Four yeah. between Drago's training and uh and Rocky's. I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, I do think these movies fit the kind of Rocky genre, the sports fleece genre template. I mean, it, they do fit that fairly well, and this is another good example of it. So they're good at establishing the underdog, but maybe just having the underdog earn it, we have an issue. This with. is a clever way of doing it too, because the of the crew's character. So it's it's not terrible, and I li- love the sentiment. Lo- I, right. I, I I, that's how it. I was. Like, the effort was made, even though it was a room of men, and it's 2017, there's no excuse for not having a female perspective in the writing. Like, the effort was made to highlight yeah. this woman empowerment type of movie, but it does fall flat at times. Okay, well, here's the worst scene. 
surrounding okay. that woman empowerment. No, it's surrounding the fact that they don't understand any racing sport ever. That's a problem. You cannot sub out a racer. Yeah. You can't do that. The whole point, especially of a 400 freaking lap race, <laughs> is that it's about endurance. The endurance of the car. All right? You cannot substitute at all. Otherwise, everybody would do it. It's the most asinine thing I've ever seen a movie do in my life. And their ex explanation for trying to explain away the objection is like, well, technically the number just needs to be out there. No! Oh, yeah? No! <laughs> never! Elon Musk comes along with like a rocket with four painted on the side of it. Can you imagine the Boston Marathon? <laughs> Or the Olympics, right. the, the freaking 5K, <laughs> subbing out after, you know, every thousand miles. Are you kidding right, me? Right. It's not the 5 by 1K. It's not the 2 by 400 laps. Or somebody gets lap. a bicycle halfway through, but the number's out there. What? The Tour de France. If you just had different riders, every... Everybody's on a bike and some guy's in a car. <laughs> like, that's what this is, essentially. Like, you're replacing the technology, not, not even the vehicle, but just the technology. Because Cruz has proven to be a superior vehicle to Lightning throughout this movie. It so she has what Lightning doesn't. It nullifies the whole lead-up to the movie. <laughs> It does. That they could tag team the yeah. race. Oh my God. Talk about a rule. So I don't have to look inside and reach deep down to no, find the better me? Here's the thing. Is this a meta narrative on the whole pre-production history of the Pixar company oh, that you referenced before based on the old switcheroo loophole that uh, Disney pulled on them with Toy Story 2, not counting towards their three movie deal? It's not, but I appreciate the effort that you just made to draw that parallel because that would be a hell of a hell of a move. It would have been. I wonder if that you know came into play. Like, wait a minute, we've been screwed before. What if we screwed all these other asshole cars? We've portrayed them to be assholes this whole you know three movie arc, so they could be assholes and we can pull the. It's not in the rule book. Just have the same number. Apparently nobody has thought of that before. <laughs> You're so right in that like it totally negates all of the work Lightning was doing throughout this all movie to prove that he has one good race and left. How, and how good is she that she can run half the race? I mean, fine. And what's ridiculous too in the racing is that they pass like <laughs> at this pace, she's at that pace passing 17 cars <laughs> in one lap, in one shot. If she passed 17 cars in one lap, she would win by <laughs> lapping everybody 47 times. It's and, bullshit. And then the ending to shoehorn and stuff. This this franchise has a problem with just stuffing narratives in at the last second. To stuff in that, oh, well, Lightning wins too because he ran the first half of the race. So he gets the shoes when he wants to Can retire. Can you believe? <laughs> Again, I'm asking my lawyer. Like the deals, the lawyering referenced in those last few scenes yeah. just for them to just completely retcon everything. Oh, by the way, this. Oh, you remember when we said yeah. that earlier? Uh-huh. I forget what it even was about. Nothing was... says children's story like legally semantics. <laughs> well, I didn't really mean that, so yeah. we still get away with it, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, I bought that company. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what are we doing? Yeah, but again, I would say, I can't speak for you, but world's better than Cars 2. I would watch this movie yeah. on repeat for 24 hours, like what they do with a Christmas story on TNT on Christmas, <laughs> rather than ever sit through Cars 2 again. Yeah, I'm okay with passing on all of these movies going forward. <laughs> You're not uh, alone this, with, by this going by the critics' This was a difficult rewatch, uh, and those are my final thoughts on the Cars series. You, Mike? The final thoughts are this. We dreaded doing this, this episode for so long because we knew these movies 
aren't the cream of the Pixar crop. Now, why do they keep getting made sequels of? Well, we hinted on that, too. They are wealths, treasure trests of just equity and resources yeah. and revenue for now the Disney company at large. They keep they apparently make so many billions just off the back of one of these that they're able to greenlight them. It's obviously worth it for them to say the critics score be damned. My question would be is that going to hurt if they keep greenlighting this franchise and never figuring out how to make a stellar story with it, is it going to end up hurting the Pixar brand overall? Which was actually the gamble Eisner was hinting at when he said that Disney didn't need Pixar because he actually, in one of his meetings, came out and said, look at every famous director. Look at every famous director, every famous company's best years they end they always hit an end yeah. pixar is not going to be aces forever and when pixar ends disney doesn't want to be left holding the bag and that was eisner's rationale so by greenlighting these cars movies are you hurting pixar's brand i wonder about that if we get to like cars nine lightning mcqueen's boogaloo you know well, let's see how good toy story 4 is by all accounts it's still pretty right. darn good but y you're right uh look if incredibles 2 sucked i would maybe say all right we're getting there good dinosaur wasn't great but I mean, Coco, Coco was, was great. great, and then you have all these movies that are that are terrific. Toy Story Two has great early reviews. Onward looks fun. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't agree so far. I mean, they're they're pulling it off so far. I mean, we've hell, this is episode number fourteen or whatever, something like that. Yeah, and we haven't gotten many bad films. No, you're we absolutely really right. I have the good dinosaur. We saved them all one. for this episode. That being said, <laughs> Mike, if we had kids, and you 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 know you have ne young niece and nephew, yeah. They watch some Drek, I'm sure. Like, they watch some stuff that is just total kids' sure. stuff, sure. and it's just unwatchable for you. Yes. This is more watchable for you as an uncle. One in three, certainly. Yeah. So, like, if, if they have this on in the background and you're doing whatever on your laptop as you hope they don't kill themselves, in, in, you know, in, in, when you're supposed to be watching them. You guys playing with knives? <laughs> don't play with knives. But you would rather have this on than whatever Teletubbies nonsense oh, sure. or whatever yeah, the kids yeah, yeah. are watching these days. So, you know, so parents of kids who have to watch something would prefer this over other things, but that's relativism. I mean, we, we are snobby Oscar critics, right. and as snobby Oscar critics, I don't, I don't like these movies. Not Oscar-nominated for reasons, right. I would agree. Yeah, that seems to be. And look, they clearly don't care about that. They clearly want they care about the merchandising, the licensing. That that's painfully obvious. Look, I think the prequel will be the most interesting thing about this movie. <laughs> the <laughs> war. The war for the planet cars, of the cars. Judgment Day, yeah. The war for the planet of the cars. Whatever you want there, I'm in for that, because that's fascinating. Now, that all said, hopefully the biggest piece of this was both the screenwriting rules and the backstory the, the, that got there. The history was fascinating. Yeah, that's awesome I think that job. really is worth uh, researching and hearing about and reading into because it's two of the most powerful men in the entertainment and technology world butting heads against one another. Look, I didn't pay attention to Cars 2, but do you think perhaps that was the plot of Cars 2 some, in some way, shape, or form? Was Michael Caine it's like... Car Jobs! <laughs> and Michael Mustanger! <laughs> so I'm not in the creative department <laughs> <laughs> all right guys we want to know your thoughts was the long-awaited much anticipated cars episode worth it uh did you learn something maybe you didn't know before do you did we miss anything going over all this are these movies great and we just don't see the reasons why let us know reach out to us we're mike mike and oscar on facebook mike mike and oscar on instagram mm and oscar on twitter mike mike and oscar at gmail.com.com and on reddit we're available everywhere you hear podcasts tune in stitcher itunes soundcloud spotify google play etc etc uh 
Uh, if you have a couple minutes free, a couple seconds free, if you appreciate what we do here, if you can leave us a review on iTunes, click those five stars. Those really do go a long way. We truly appreciate each and every one. We do read and comment, if not publicly, then at least amongst ourselves on pretty much every comment we get on every social media. So so rest assured, uh, we're, we're out there. We're watching what you're doing. We truly appreciate each and every one of you. Michael, what's coming next? What's on the MMO horizon? What's some word of wisdom for these good listeners? Yeah, we got Mike, Mike, and Oscar Weekly coming out early this week. We don't know if it'll be Monday or Tuesday yet. We right. haven't had that production meeting yet, but we're going to hit, I think, Tarantino towards the end of the week. Otherwise, it's Toy Story 3. Yeah. It's Toy Story 4 midweek. We're going to enjoy, you know, probably my favorite Pixar film. I think at least it was without last yeah. I'd seen it. I mean, yeah, that's what I would say. But based on memory, no question. One of our favorites, let's put it to say the least, because we've watched some great ones like yeah. Up, and even I, I enjoyed Finding Nemo much more than I did. This this sure. watch has been a joy uh, overall. Far more great episodes and great movies to watch than not. But we will continue Tarantino, and we'll finish up Pixar. Can't believe we're going to be done with this. And we just, before yeah, before the uh, episode started today, we were talking about all the new movies we're going to review. July is a big month, and I knew June was going to be slow. Definitely May and June were going to be slow. So we time these rewatches correctly to fill in you know that off-season time before you know all the Oscar contenders start to come out a bunch are going to come out in June at least a bunch of movies that are really intriguing to us like the farewell July like midsummer uh, late June July yesterday late June Toy right. Story 4 late June and then certainly July there's a bunch you got a Spider-Man movie you got an Annabelle creation movie and we've covered those uh, franchises so we got a lot of stuff that we could do should do and hopefully will get the chance to review I'm really excited about that you know what the problem was about going four episodes a week and choosing to cover franchise reviews and new movies and Oscar lens and all that um, we didn't account you said problem singular right well we didn't account for like Sleep. Mm. <laughs> when, right. When 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 are we gonna sleep? <laughs> it's been hard, but we, we. So we take it out on cards too. Is what happened. <laughs> yeah. So words of wisdom, Michael. What do we have? You know what they call a contest in a racing sport where there's a substitute? What? A relay. <laughs> it's called a relay. I thought you were gonna say a cheat. No, it's just a, yeah, it's a cheat, but it's called a relay. Call it the, the NASCAR, the Piston Cup Relay. You could do that. Ridiculous. Mike's a track coach. <laughs> uh, guys, when reality sucks, you can come watch movies with us. We are trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar, and we will see you soon. See ya.